Hello and welcome to today's VJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. In today's podcast, you will hear from leading experts who discuss the importance of improving diagnosis in myeloproliferative neoplasms, current and emerging therapies in this space, and the growing role of combination approaches. First, Lucia Masarova comments on the value of next-generation sequencing in MPN diagnosis and further summarizes therapies under investigation for the treatment of polycythemia vera. Next generation sequencing uh, has been more and more implemented into these patients for one uh, assessment of their long-term outcome, disease behavior in terms of disease progression. So we, we knew for quite years now that there are certain mutations that predict better disease behavior, so-called high-risk mutations. For example, ASXA1, EZH2, IDH mutation, certain splicings. So we were testing them randomly to, to just basically put them in the field and to see how they're gonna go, right? Now we know that they do actually prognosticate for long-term behavior or for the disease progressing or behaving unexpectedly. So I think they should become more a standard of care for a long-term care, especially now in the era of novel therapies, where hopefully and maybe we are going to move the field goals for controlling the thrombotic risks, controlling the symptoms, to controlling the disease itself in terms of its background, such as risk of progression, risk of going into myelofibrosis or death or acute leukemias. So those could help us to better dissect the disease uh, pathology and behavior and maybe allow us to act proactively. So really identify the worst patients and then uh, taking them into more adverse therapies upfront and prevent the disease progression. So I do think this has a big role in the future. And uh, I know there always is cost versus benefit, but if we at least learn which patients actually need it are more risky, they would really play the game. It's a quite nicely moving field where we actually have already um, approved agents that was just lately brought in RAPEG interferon for patients with high risk or low risk polycythemia vera. That is also now entered a clinical trial called Eclipse that is gonna evaluate the um, currently established and approved uh, administration, which is uh, at the beginning escalation by 50 micrograms every other week under the skin until we reach the target dose of 500. Uh, however, because it's a slower escalation, we found out that maybe some patients that have a lot of disease to start with might suffer consequences of uncontrolled disease by the time we reach the controlled dose. So the other arm that we'll be comparing it is faster escalation using something we call the three-step. So we'll go 250 micrograms, 350 micrograms, and 500 micrograms every other week. So we reach the target dose faster. So that is very exciting to learn and see uh, what we can gain from it and how we're gonna better customize the delivery. That is a very promising agent that actually is now even moving in ET and uh, prefibrotic myelofibrosis. So lots of excitement about our interferon. We've had uh, two studies actually at this conference to show. And then uh, we have a very, very, very important and physiologically smart hepcidin mimetic, which is an iron metabolism regulator drug that is actually, um, seem like very interesting alternative to phlebotomies 
or add-on therapies to other patients that are on anything uh, that we need to control uh, phlebotomy needs. That was actually uh, investigated in the phase two revive study um, that was added to any therapy patients were on if they required phlebotomy. And then the rusfertide showed to be extremely effective in uh, eliminating the needs of phlebotomies that was achieved in 83% of these patients during the initial 28 weeks treatment interval. So uh, that is another very interesting agent that is currently enrolling in phase three clinical trials and is gonna show us, hey, what would be the best place to, to get this agent in the treatment field? So that is another very, very interesting area of a different, different drugs. Uh, we have very well established raxalitinib or Jacophy in a second line setting in these patients. Uh, very exciting data came from Claire Harrison uh, that actually were called a magic PV, which was another study that evaluated the effect of raxalitinib on patients with PV, specifically like thrombotic events, progression to myelofibrosis, even free survivals, and could we show superiority. So that was a very interesting findings lately that we can actually be assured, yes, this agent also does a lot for control of the disease, including vascular complications. So there are currently studies that are placing this agent in a frontline setting as well. So we will learn better how to better sequence them because look like we will have a competing field. Next, you will hear from Anthony Hunter, who shares clinical guidance for the correct use of JAK inhibitors when treating patients with myelofibrosis, highlighting approaches to managing toxicities associated with these agents. Yeah, so I think, you know, uh, JAK inhibitors have been sort of our mainstay in, in uh, myelofibrosis therapy for about a decade, a little over a decade now since Rexlitinib was approved. And so, um, you know, obviously a little bit newer now with multiple agents coming out, but still, you know, a lot of those drugs achieving sort of the same things. And so, um, you know, many patients do benefit from JAK inhibitor use, but not necessarily all of them. We do see, you know, a subset of patients who predominantly have anemia um, or patients who are very lower risk disease and, and really don't have much in the way of symptoms who don't necessarily need a JAK inhibitor, at least sort of right in the frontline setting. Um, and contrary to that, in patients who are higher risk and have you know, significant spleen and symptoms, we do see benefit by using it early in the disease course. So it is important to uh, these symptomatic patients and high risk patients to, to try and use JAK inhibitors early on. Um, you know, uh, when we're treating with these agents, you know, um, generally uh, patients do tend to feel better by shrinking spleens down and improving those symptoms, uh, but certainly can see some toxicity. A couple of the agents we do see some GI toxicity with, and so it's important to sort of counsel on that and provide sort of supportive care in the first couple months until that typically does resolve. Also important, particularly in patients on uh, ruxolitinib and fidratinib, where we can see quite a drop in um, hemoglobin and platelet counts, mostly in that first two to three months of therapy where we really see that Occur. So it's important to sort of monitor blood counts very closely in the first couple months. And then generally once we see those sort of start to plateau, can sort of space out how often we're seeing those patients again. And there is some risk of, of infections and opportunistic infections. So that is something to sort of keep in mind um, in patients uh, sort of when we're using these agents as well, as, as well as potentially increased risk of non-melanoma skin cancers um, that are important to sort of keep an eye on in these patients as well. Um, but generally, once we're using it, uh, especially with agent like ruxolitinib with sort of different doses, it's important to sort of optimize that dose and to try and achieve effective doses and sort of uh, titrate the dosing to response. Um, do you have to be careful about blood counts and things like that, but certainly, um, 
um, especially with Rexlam, we see a clear sort of dose response effect for spleen and symptom response. So um, important to try to get up to those optimal doses and maintain patients on, on dosing as long as they're sort of continuing to get some benefit from the drug. Um, and now we do have some you know, data with these newer agents of sort of second line JAK inhibitor use as well, which is an important sort of aspect for these. Um, a key sort of thing about when you're thinking about switching or stopping these is that uh, certainly do not want to abruptly stop uh, JAK inhibitor. You can see a pretty sometimes very dramatic sort of withdrawal symptom and patients actually get pretty sick from that sometimes. So it is important to, if you're stopping altogether, to sort of taper that off generally over a few weeks. Um, and really ideally what you want to do is, is really have a backup option sort of in mind that you're going to immediately transition them to. Often, you know, a, another JAK inhibitor now, certainly clinical trial is an important option in this setting as well. Um, but I generally do continue ruxolitinib with the thought that it's giving at least some benefit until I'm immediately starting on sort of that next line of therapy to avoid sort of acute worsening of the disease and some of the things that we can see when stopping a JAK inhibitor. Lastly, Jean-Jacques Kilagian and John Mascarenas share some insights into the growing role and value of combination approaches in the treatment of myelofibrosis. Yes, although uh, JAK inhibitor is probably the the first treatment that will be prescribed in many patients with myelofibrosis with different profiles and different drugs available now. However, we have several uh, unmet needs in these patients because for all these JAK inhibitors, for example, patients often lose the response after several years of utilization. Also, some of them don't achieve very deep responses and they keep some levels, some degree of splenomegaly or some degree of symptoms and are not uh, completely relieved of the disease. So I think we have uh, uh, some patients in whom combination therapy could be of benefit, including those who, are, who have lost the response to JAK inhibitor, who have suboptimal response, but also very high-risk patients, for example, who are not eligible for allogenic stem cell transplantation, either because they have comorbidities or we don't have a suitable donor for them. So for these patients, having a let's say a stronger treatment against the disease uh, could be of benefit and then combination therapy for them could be beneficial. And we have several drugs that are now in very advanced phases of development, including phase three studies, like for example, Navitoclax, which is a BCLXL, BCL2 inhibitor. And we will probably have soon the results of both the first line uh, study, Transform 1, that combined ruxolitinib 2 navitoclax in JAK inhibitor naive patients, but also of the Transform 2 study that uh, tested the addition of navitoclax in patients who were already treated with a JAK inhibitor. We also have a BET inhibitor, Pelabrazib, that uh, in the study Manifest 2 uh, has been tested also in combination with ruxolitinib, and I guess that these results will also soon be available in the few months. And we have several other drugs that have been tested also in combination with ruxolitinib usually, uh, that are, for example, uh, naftemadlin, an MDM2 inhibitor. We have also uh, coming less advanced phases with other compounds like Selinex or uh, we have also monotherapies with uh, drugs like imetelstat that may help to uh, achieve again some responses in patients who have lost their response to JAK inhibitors. The research is moving really in multiple directions. I think you know JAK inhibitors are clearly the, the, the basis of treatment and initial treatment for many patients. Uh, we're moving beyond JAK inhibitors or JAK inhibitor alone, I should say, so combination therapies. So for example, Palabrasib, the BET inhibitor, um, has shown very compelling phase two data. 
of clinical activity, deeper spleen and symptom responses, uh, bone marrow fibrosis reduction, reduction in driver mutations, um, with the suggestion that this may be a more potent um, approach to treating myelofibrosis. And rather than waiting for patients to progress, the idea is to use these two agents in combination early on uh, in JAK inhibitor and IA patients. And that's what the manifest two phase three study, uh, which is a randomized study of JAK inhibitor and IA patients, uh, ruxolitinib plus placebo versus ruxolitinib plus palabrasib. It will read out in October of this year um, and has the potential to be game-changing. I mean, this could shift the paradigm away from what we do now, which is sequential JAK inhibitor therapy to combination therapies earlier on, try to get deeper responses. It's most meaningful these deeper responses translate to longer durability of response, progression-free survival, and ultimately overall survival. And that's what we're really looking for when we look at some of the, the longer-term follow-up from Manifest 2. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJHemonk and subscribe to VJHemonk Podcasts on Spotify, Apple, and Podbean. Until next time. Thank you.